6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 3 and 4. Let's move on to the next section that we're... He said, look within. Now he's going to say, look ahead. And what he's looking ahead is something that's certain for all of us. We all have an appointment with death. Solomon's already mentioned the certainty of death in chapter 2. And he's going to bring this up again in chapter 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, and 12. Life, death, time, eternity are all fundamental ingredients that make up our brief existence in this world. And they can't be ignored. We may not like the topics, but they cannot be ignored. Verse 15, that which hath seen is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. Now here's another uh, important insight by Solomon. He recognizes there's a thing called accountability. The past isn't gone forever. There's going to be an accountability for it. This is part in chapter 1. He called, In effect, he called it the cycle of life. And the past seems to repeat itself, it would seem. He says there's nothing new in the sun. But see, God can break into history and do what he pleases. And he has many miracles that evidence the cycle is a pattern and not a prison. There are cycles in history, there are cycles all over, but these cycles God can intervene and does. In fact, God is unique. In fact, even our understanding of God is unique in that our God is transcendent from his creation, separate from his creation. You may not re- realize this, but it's, the Bible is the only holy book that presents a God of that kind. That he's distinct and transcendent from his creation. On the one hand, and yet he also has the interest and capability to enter his creation and participate with us. And he did. That's what the person of Jesus Christ is all about. He actually entered his creation to fulfill the requirements of his creation. And he broke, Jesus Christ broke this vicious cycle, if you will, this life-death cycle, because he, he can now make us part of a new creation because he's overcome time and death. But Solomon adds a new account here. He says that uh, God will call the past into account, is the way the NIV handles verse 15. It's a difficult thing to translate. What he literally says is God seeks what hurries along. He really seems to say this time goes by swiftly and gets away from us, but God to keep track of it and will, at the end of time, call into account everything that we've done with the time we have. That's a terrifying thing, to be accountable for everything we've, we've done. Now, this will tie in with verses 16 and 17, where Psalm is going to dwell on the injustices of his day. and wonder why divine judgment's been delayed. That's a common theme uh, in literature in general, and the Bible in particular. But let's go verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and every work. This raises the classical question, of course, how can God be in control when there's so much evil in our world? With the wicked prospering in their sin and the righteous suffering for their obedience. Those are tough questions. I don't think there's anything 
that more universally raises our ire than injustice. We have a great deal of difficulty trying to define justice. If you've ever been in a law course or something and you had to try to define what do we mean by justice, it's a difficult task on the one hand. But there's nothing more universal or expressive or focused than injustice. You almost end up defining justice as the absence of injustice. But anyway, Solomon will comfort himself on this whole topic with two assurances. That God has a time for everything, including judgment. We're going to see that in chapter 8. And God is working out His eternal purposes in and through the deeds of men, even the deeds of the wicked. It's hard for us to understand. But strangely enough, even Satan and even the wickedness in this world is ultimately uh, going to be used of God, in effect. Strange, but uh, clear. Okay, verse 18. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them as one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. He's not really saying there's no difference uh, uh, over man and beast, but he's saying there, there are some things in common, and there's a difference. He merely pointed out that men and beasts have two things in common. They both die and their bodies return to dust. But man is made in the image of God, and man has a definite advantage over animals as far as life is concerned. But when it comes to the fact of death, man has no special advantage. He too turns to dust, is, the, is what Solomon is saying. And we know, of course, especially from the New Testament insight, that those who are saved in Christ will one day be resurrected and have glorified bodies suitable for their heavenly home. 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, not only deals with that, but is arguably the most important chapter in the Bible. Because Paul himself says if we don't have chapter 15 and what it contains, we have nothing. So if you have concerns about this or you're starting to misunderstand Solomon here, I encourage you to, to just plunge headlong in 1 Corinthians 15. But what he's saying here is that uh, all go to one place, all are of dust, and all are turned to dust again. He's speaking in strictly naturalistic terms. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? So that's pretty straightforward. Uh, I do have to apologize to pet lovers. My daughter Lisa pointed out, she's a, quite a horse fancier, that there must be horses in heaven because Jesus comes back riding to one. And she was wondering about you know, animals in general. I pointed out there has to be cats in heaven. She says, really, Dad? I says, of course. Where else would they get the strings for the harps? She almost hit me. She almost punched me out. But anyway, Solomon closes this section by reminding us again to accept life from God's hand and enjoy it while we can. Nobody knows what the future holds. And even if we did know, we can't return uh, to life after we've died and start again. Even if you knew it was coming, you can't change it, in other words, that aspect of it. But we do know that God is sovereign control of life, and so we can submit to Him and be at peace. Faith learns to live with inconsistencies and absurdities. Why? Because we live by promises and not explanations. Boy, that a precious truth. We live by promises, not by explanations. We can't explain life, but we must experience life either enduring it or enjoying it. And Solomon calls us to accept life, enjoy it a day at a time, and be satisfied. Never be satisfied with yourselves or ourselves. We've got to be satisfied with what God gives us 
to, in this life. And that's the real thrust of Solomon's uh, message here. We may grow in character and godliness if we live by faith, and we'll be able to say with Paul, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That's the NIV version of Philippians 4.11. Paul says in the King James Version, I have learned to whatever state I find himself there and to be content. And uh, Well, let's, uh, let's go on to chapter 4. When Solomon first uh, examined life under the sun, his viewpoint was detached and philosophical. His conclusion that that was was it was meaningless and, and monotonous, but now as he examines the question again, he's going to go where people really live, and he's going to discover that life is not that simple. Far from being monotonous, it's enigmatic. Those are contradictions. You can't have something that's enigmatic and call it monotonous. So uh, we have no idea what problems are going to occur each day. We understand why. Solomon wrote Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Same guy wrote that. So he starts in the courtroom. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead, which were already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. <laughs> Funny, that, last, that verse 2 reminds me of Herman Kahn, he was one of the great thinkers of previous decades. He used to give lectures at the Rand Corporation. He was the expert on thermonuclear war. But I remember one of the chapter titles of his famous volume on thermonuclear war, the definitive text that led to all the rest. Um, he said, will the living envy the dead? Interesting insight of that thinker. But anyway, um, so I return and consider all the oppressions that were done under the sun. You know, it's interesting... Uh, Ambrose Pierce defines politics. It's a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles. The conduct of public affairs for private advantage. That's his definition of politics in his famous Devil's Dictionary publication. The nation of Israel had an adequate judicial system based on divine law, but it could be corrupted just like anything else. Moses warned officials to just honestly and fairly in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 1, and so on. And both the prophet and the psalmist lashed out against social injustice. All through the scripture, a lot of verses, they'll be in your notes. And Solomon had been a wise and just king, but it was impossible for him to guarantee the integrity of every officer in government. So he went to courtroom to watch a trial and saw the innocent people being oppressed by powerful uh, officials. The victims wept, their tears did no good. Nobody stood with them to comfort them. The oppressors had all the power. We've all seen that. In fact, it's a very common theme in movies. The movie The Verdict was an example of that. Paul Newman challenging a corrupt court in Boston. The Insider recent movie is also deals with it in another dimension. Our own experience in the courtroom has been similar. It's a, it's a roulette wheel at best. The uh, American orator Daniel Webster once called justice, quote, the ligament which holds civilized beings and nations together, close quote. Well, the body politic in Solomon's day, and I think apparently in ours, seems to have a torn ligament. But let's move on. Wherefore I praise the dead which were already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he that than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I consider it all travail, every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, what he's going to look here is he's going to, he's going to witness three tragedies here. Um, the oppression, exploitation in the halls of justice, the pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people, and the unconcern on the part of those who could have brought comfort. 
And he was so devastated by what he saw that he thought it was better to be dead than alive. That's just his emotional reaction to the extremes he witnessed. And uh, in fact, he's saying he's better off of never having been born at all than to see the evil works of man. That's, his, that's the emotional cry we're hearing here. We say, gee, he was king. Why didn't he do something about it? There's Solomon's the king, right? And uh, even the king couldn't uh, do a lot to solve this problem. See, once he started to interfere with government and started to interfere with the, uh, the way things were organized, he could only create new problems and reveal more corruption. So the, this isn't to suggest that we should despair of cleaning out political corruption. We should all pray for all those in authority. And we should do what we can to see that just laws are passed and fairly enforced. But it's doubtful that a large administrative body like the one in Israel would ever be free of corruption, that a crusader could uh, you know, really do much to improve the uh, situation. Edward Gibbon, who uh, the author of Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, said that the political corruption was the most infallible symptom of constitutional liberty. Interesting observation. You might be right. Because where there's freedom to obey, there's also freedom to disobey. And some of Solomon's officials felt they were above the law and innocent suffered. Now, when you have a system of government like ours, you understand we have an allegiance to law, to the rule of law rather than to an individual. That's what makes us distinctive. We have a commitment to a rule of law, not to any individual. But unless there's a return to accountability to that law, the legacy of the previous administration, arguably the most criminal in our recent history, uh, the seat will have cast the seeds of our own destruction. The corruption we see today are really echoes of the examples that were led uh, uh, to us by the previous from the top down. So we shouldn't be surprised. Now, disgusted with what he saw in the halls of justice, he then went to the marketplace to watch laborers at work, thinking this should be better. Honest toil was a gift. It was also ordained by God. He considered four different kinds of men. The industrious man is first, in verse 4. Consider all travail, every right work, for this is a man envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. And then uh, he gets to verse 5. He looks at the idle man. The fool folds his hands together and eateth his own flesh. In other words, he goes from one extreme to the other. The industrious guy who's on a treadmill and trapped, the one that's not doing anything and gets eaten up by his lifestyle, in effect. He obviously has no sympathy for lazy people because he speaks about them in Proverbs 18, 19, 24. All, all through the Proverbs, Solomon emphasizes diligence. He realizes that laziness is a, a slow and, and a path towards self-destruction. Proverbs 6, for example, as you sleep, poverty creeps upon you like a robber and destroys you. Want attacks you in full armor. Paul said the same thing in first, in Second Thessalonians 3, if any would not work, they should not eat. So the industrious man was motivated by competition and was caught in the rat race. Had no leisure time. So if the idle man is motivated by pleasure and was headed for ruin, had no productive time. And because that goes, comes to the next one, and that's the integrated man, the balanced man. That's in verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. And he really, the, the whole idea is to is do it for balance, and we could talk a lot about that, but time's slipping away from us, so let's uh, keep moving. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor, neither is, he, is the eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor, labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. And he's here talking about the independent man. Uh, this is a solitary man, very hard at work, but he discovered he had no relatives or partners. He had no heirs to leave his wealth to. Everything he did was for himself, but he was lonely. And he, if he died, he had no family to inherit his wealth and so forth. And uh, I think it was Socrates, the Greek philosopher, said, the unexamined life is not worth living. 
But see, the independent man has never stopped to ask himself, for whom am I working so hard? Why am I robbing myself of the enjoyments of life just to amass more money, in effect, and so on? So we've looked at the whole series. And so each one of these, in effect, uh, is meaningless or miserable in, in Solomon's assessment of all of this. So now he's going to move uh, to the highway. So his experience with the independent man caused him to consider the importance of friendship and the value of people doing things together. That's the way he's moving here. He says, two is better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they, and if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they have heat. How can one be warm alone? I'd like to talk to you, just to change of pace, about the golden plover. We're, we're really not changing the subject, but we're going to change the pace. The golden plover is a little tiny bird. It weighs about 130 grams. And what it does every year, it flies from Alaska to Hawaii. And this chart shows you the flight time. On the left is the weight of the bird. And on the right is the fuel consumption. Now, the fuel consumption, it weighs 130 grams normally. But it in anticipation of its flight from Alaska to Hawaii, uh, it gains weight. It actually picks up 70 grams. And as it flies, it consumes energy. And we have the equation for the energy it consumes. It turns out that if he, fly, if he gains 70 grams, which is what he can gain, and he can't get less than 130, that's his, his, his raw weight. Um, if you do the calculations at the fuel consumption, you discover this problem is, he has an 88-hour flight to Hawaii, and he only has enough fuel to fly for 72 hours. There are no islands between Alaska and Hawaii. There are many mysteries. Is how does he navigate so, so precisely? And those are still mysteries. There are all kinds of conjectures, but they're still really mysteries. But the real problem is that if you do an analysis, he can't make it. He can only, by raising the, adding 70 grams to his weight, he can only fly for 72 hours, and he's got an 88-hour flight in front of him. A quarter of a million wing flaps. They've, they've analyzed all this. But he makes it to Hawaii. The question is, how does he make it to Hawaii? He mathematically can't. You know how he does it? He flies in formation. Do you ever realize that that's why birds fly in Vs? Is that they do the same thing a race driver does around a track. A race driver calls it drafting. Because if you're in the wake of the guy in front of you, you're going to use less energy. And you can use that to slingshot yourself around them if you know how to do it. Well, the birds do that in flight too. It turns out by flying in formation, he can extend his 72 hours to 88 hours and make Hawaii. In fact, he has 6.8 grams in reserve for headwinds. Now, I was going through all this. I came across it from some writings of Werner Gitt and the analysis. I was very intrigued with this one morning because I do most of my work very early. I get up early in the morning, do it early. So I'm usually through with most of my key work by the time breakfast comes. So Nan gets up about 7. We usually have breakfast 7, 8. So I come down all excited about these numbers. She is this interesting about this little tiny bird. And look, I, I, go, I go through all of this. She looked at me, and her immediate response was, gee, that just proves you can't make it by yourself. I thought, wow, isn't that just like my wife? You see, I have all the interesting little details and missed the whole point, you see. But she cuts right through that. She says, what this is saying is that you can't go it alone. The plover, the golden plover, could not get from where it has to go for winter by itself. So it goes in a group. And they rotate the lead. And he picks up a 22% improvement in fuel consumption. 
which turns in this case to be essential. And I thought, I just thought that's kind of interesting. To share that with you, you never know what's going to come up in a Chuck Missler Bible study. Two, better than one, if you're just, just going through life, it's also in terms of protection. If one prevail against them, two shall withstand them. That's assuming they're under attack. And here's this famous line, often quoted from Ecclesiastes, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And again, the idea of threefold cord has more strength, but there's even a deeper thought here. This is often quoted with respect to marriage. Your marriage will last if it's a threefold cord. You, your spouse, and the Lord. It's a trilogy. It's going to succeed. And how precious that truth is. Anyway, it continues, Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Solomon seems to introduce here a story. He's, he's shifting, uh, verse 13, to the palace. And uh, he's sort of uh, introducing a story that has two truths. The instability of political power and the fickleness of popularity. Better is a poor and wise child than an old foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign. Now there's a child apparently gets out of prison. For some reason he ends up, uh, whereas he that is born in his kingdom uh, becometh poor. And uh, there is a hero in the story because uh, I consider all the living which walk under the sun and the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after all will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a vexation of spirit. In other words, the young man was born poor, but he became rich. The old king was rich, but he didn't, it didn't make him any wiser. He might as well just have been poor, is, is the thought. The young man was in prison, but he got out and took the throne. The old king was imprisoned in his stupidity and within the circle of his sycophants that, uh, uh, and lost his throne. So the moral seems to be that wealth and position are no guarantee of success, and poverty and seeming failure are no barriers to achievement. And the key to all of this, of course, is wisdom. So apparently the young man got out of prison took the throne because of popular demand. And uh, the way it reads, verse 15 in the New American Standard, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him, replaced the old king. And it looked like the young kid had it made, but alas, his popularity didn't last. The, uh, new, the uh, Living Bible says that he can become the leader of millions of people and be very popular, but then the younger generation grows up around him and rejects him. The new crowd deposed the king and appointed somebody else, is the thought. So it goes on, verse 16, There is no end to all people, even that... Even all that they have seen before them, they also that come after shall not rejoice in them. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. So again, once again, Solomon drew the same conclusion, vanity and vexation of spirit, or grasping at wind. So no matter where he went, no matter what aspect of life he studied, he learned an important lesson from the Lord. When he looked up, he saw that God was in control of life and balanced its various experiences. That was the first eight verses of chapter 3. When he looked within, he saw that man was made for eternity and that God would make all things beautiful in their time. When he looked ahead, he saw the last enemy of death. Then as he looked around, he understood that life is complex, difficult, and not easy to explain. One thing is sure, no matter where you look, you see trials and problems and people who could use some encouragement. So strangely enough, Psalm is not cynical about life. Nowhere does he tell us to get out of the rat race and retreat to some safe and comfortable corner in the world where nothing can bother us. Life does not stand still. It comes at us with full speed, without warning, and we stand up and take it, and with God's help, make the most of it. So if this chapter teaches us anything, is that we need one another, because two are better than one. There are some advantages to the independent life, but there are also disadvantages, and we discover them painfully as we get older. In verse 6, the New, the New King James says, Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. 
So it's good to have things that money can buy, provided that you don't lose the things that money can't buy. What is it really costing you in terms of life to get the things that are important to you? I often talk to people about budgeting and so forth. The key thing when you try to budget yourself, not dollars, take your time. What's demanding your time? You can always get more money. You can also always get more things. You can't get more time. Time is your most precious commodity, and when you budget, budget your time. And make sure that there's time for everything. That brings us back to the opening 14 comparables that open the study. Time is the precious commodity. Time is the thing to budget because it's, it's the only thing of which the supply is inelastic. You have a fixed number of days, whatever they are. And uh, what's really important to you? How much of the permanent are you sacrificing to get your hands on the temporary? Remember what Jesus said, just to wrap this up. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you, Father, that you have given us time. We do pray, Father, you would increase our sensitivity to your agenda, your priorities. Help us, Father, to be good stewards of that which you've already given us those resources, those opportunities, yes, in the time that we have right now. Help us, Father, to be sensitive to who you are and that you are in control and that you have a purpose in everything. And, Father, we do pray that the lessons not be wasted, that we each might grow in our diligence, in our stewardship, that we might be more pleasing in your sight. Help us, Father, to indeed enjoy the life you've given us as it too is a gift of yours, Father. We just commit ourselves afresh into your hands in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.